Chapter Three of the Witches of New York by Q. K. Philander Dostics. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, wherein are related diverse strange things of Madame Bruce, the mysterious veiled lady, of Number Five One Three Broom Street. Chapter Three, Madame Bruce, the mysterious veiled lady, Number Five One Three Broom Street. The woman who assumes the title of the mysterious veiled lady is much younger in the black art trade than Madame Prewster, and has only been publicly known as a fortune-teller for about six years. The mysterious veil is assumed partly for the very mystery's sake, and partly to hide a countenance which some of her visitors might desire to identify on after occasions. She confines herself more exclusively to telling fortunes than do many of the others, and has never yet made her appearance in a police court to answer to an accusation of a grave crime. She has many customers, and might have a respectable amount at the bank if she were disposed to commit her monies to the care of those careful institutions. It may be mentioned here, however, as a curious fact, that although all the witches profess to be able to tell lucky numbers, and will at any time give a paying customer the exact figures which they are willing to prophesy will draw the capital prize in any given lottery, their skill invariably fails them when they undertake to do anything in the wheel of fortune way on their own individual behalf. No one of the professional fortune-tellers was ever known to draw a rich prize in a lottery or to make a particularly lucky hit on a policy number, notwithstanding the fact that most of them make large investments in those uncertain financial speculations. Madame Bruce is no exception to this general rule, and the propinquity of the lottery agency and the policy shop, just round the corner, must be accepted in explanation of the fact that this gifted lady has no balance in her favor at the banker's. The quality of her magic and other interesting facts about her are best set forth in the words of the anxious seeker after hidden lore, who paid her a visit one pleasant afternoon in August. The individual visits Madame Bruce and has a conference with that mysterious veiled personage. A man of strong nerves can recover from the effects of a professional interview with the ponderous Prewster in about a week delicately organized persons, particularly susceptible to supernatural influences, might be so overpowered by the manifestations of her cabalistic lore as to affect their appetites for a whole lunar month, and have bad dreams till the moon changed. But the daring traveller of this voracious history was convalescent in ten days. It is true that even after that time he, in his dreams, would imagine himself engaged in protracted single combats with the heroine of the rolling-pin, and once or twice awoke in an agony of fear, under the impression that he had been worsted in the fight, and that the conquering fair was one about to cook him in a steamer, or stew him into charity soup, and season him strong with red pepper, or broil him in a gridiron and serve him up on toast to Madame Prewster, like a huge woodcock. In one gastronomic nightmare of a dream, he even fancied that the triumphant maiden had tied him, hand and foot, with links of sausage, then tapped his head with an auger, 
screwed a brass faucet into his helpless skull, and was preparing to draw off his brains in small quantities to suit cannibalic retail customers. But he eventually recovered his equanimity, his nocturnal visions of the warlike servant became less terrible, and he gradually ceased to think of her, except with a dim sort of half-way remembrance, as of some fearful danger from which many years before he had miraculously preserved. When he had reached this state of mind, he was ready to proceed with his inquiries into the mysteries of the cheap and nasty necromancy of the day, and to encounter the rest of the fifty-cent sibyls with an unperturbed spirit. Accordingly, he girded up his loins, and prepared the necessary amount of one-dollar bills, for, with the most politic and necessary carefulness, he always made his own change. Note of caution to the future observer of these modern witches. Never let one of them break a large bank bill for you, and give you small notes in exchange, lest the small bills be much more badly broken than the large one. Not that the witch's money, like the fairy's gold, will be likely to turn into chips and pebbles in your pocket, but all these fortune-tellers are expert passers of counterfeit and broken banknotes and bogus coin, and they never lose an opportunity thus to victimize a customer. Fortified with dinner, dessert, and cigars, the cash customer departed on his voyage of discovery in search of Madame Bruce, the mysterious veiled lady, who carries on all the business she can by the subjoined advertisement. Astonishing to all, Madame Bruce, the mysterious veiled lady, can be consulted on all events of life at number 513 Broom Street, one door from Thompson. She is a second sightseer and was born with a natural gift. The individual, modestly speaking of himself in the third person, admits that, being then a single man of some respectability, he was at that very period looking out for a profitable partner of his bosom, sorrows, joys, and expenses. He naturally preferred one who could do something towards taking a share of the expensive responsibility of a family off his hands, and was not disposed to object to one who was even afflicted with money. Next to that woman, whom he had not yet discovered, a lady with a natural gift for money-making, was evidently the most eligible of matrimonial speculations. Whether he really cherished an humble hope that the veil of Madame Bruce might be of semi-transparent stuff, and that she might discover and be smitten by his manly charms, and ask his hand in marriage, and eventually bear him away, a blushing husband, to the altar, or whatever might be hastily substituted for that connubial convenience, will never be officially known to the world. Certain it is that he expected great results of some sort to eventuate from his visit to this obnubilated prophetess, and that he paid extraordinary attention to the decoration of the external homo, and to the administration of encouraging stimuli to the inner individual, probably with a view to submerge for the time his characteristic bashfulness before he set out to visit the fair inscrutable of Broom Street. The nature of his secret cogitations, as he walked along, was somewhat as follows, though he himself has never before revealed the same to mortal man. He was, of course, uncertain as to her personal attractiveness. Owing to that mysterious veil there was a doubt as to her surpassing beauty. 
At any rate, he did not regret the time spent on his toilet. Madame Bruce might be a lady of the most transcendent loveliness, or she might possess a countenance after the style of Mokana, the veiled prophet. In either case, a clean shirt-collar and a little extra polish on the boots would be a touching tribute of respect. He thought over the stories of the Oriental ladies so charmingly and complexly described in the Arabian Nights' entertainments, and, in some strange way, he connected Madame Bruce with Eastern associations. He remembered that in Asiatic countries the arts of enchantment are the staple of fashionable female education, that the women imbibe the elements of magic from their wet nurses, and that their power of charming is gradually and securely developed by years and competent instructors, until they are able to go forth into the world, and raise the devil on their own hook. In this case the veil was of the east, eastern, and what was more probable than that the mysterious veiled lady was that fascinating oriental young woman whose attainments in magic made her the dire terror of her enemies, most of whom she changed into pigs and oxen and monkeys and other useful domestic animals, who had transformed her unruly grandfather into a cat of the species called Tom, had metamorphosed her vicious aunt into a screech-owl, and had turned an ungentlemanly second cousin into a one-eyed donkey. What a treasure, thought the individual, would such an accomplished wife be in Republican America! How exceedingly useful in the case of her husband's rivals for custom-house honors, and how invaluable when creditors became clamorous! What a perfect treasure would a wife be who could turn a clamorous butcher into spring lamb, and his brown apron and leather breeches into the indispensable peas and mint sauce to eat him with! Who could make the rascally baker instantly become a green parrot with only power to say, Pretty Polly wants a cracker! who would transform the dunning tailor into a greater goose than any in his own shop, who could go to Stewart's, buy a couple of thousands of dollars' worth of goods, and then turn the clerks into cockroaches, and scrunch them with her little gaiter if they interfered with her walking off with the plunder, or who, in the event of a scarcity of money, could invite a select party of fifty or sixty friends to a nice little dinner, and then change the whole lot into lions, tigers, giraffes, elephants, and ostriches, and sell the entire batch to Van Amberg and Company, at a high premium, as a freshly imported menagerie, all very fat and valuable. Then he came down from his rather elevated flight of fancy, and filled away another tack. Before he reached the house, he had fully made up his mind that Madame Bruce, the mysterious veiled lady, must be a stray oriental princess, in reduced circumstances, cruelly thrust from the paternal mansion by the infuriated proprietor, her father, and compelled to seek her fortune in a strange land. He had never seen a princess, and he resolved to treat this one with all respect and loyal veneration. To do this, if possible, without compromising his conscience as a republican and a voter in the tenth ward, but to do it at all hazards. The immense fortune which would undoubtedly be hers in the event of the relenting of her brutal though opulent father, suggested the feasibility of a future elopement, 
and a legal marriage according to the forms of any country that she preferred he couldn't bethink him of a persian justice of the peace but he did not despair of being able to manage it to her entire and perfect satisfaction her undoubted great misfortunes had touched his tender heart he would see this suffering princess he would tender his sympathy and offer his hand and the fortune he hoped she would be able to make for him if this was haughtily declined there would still remain the poor privilege of buying a dose of magic paying the price in current money and letting her make her own change having matured this disinterested resolve he proceeded calmly on his journey wondering as he walked along whether in the event of a gracious reception by his princess it would be more courtly and correct to kneel on both knees or to make an oriental cushion of his overcoat and sit down cross-legged on the floor this knotty point was not settled to his entire satisfaction when he reached that lovely portion of fairyland near the angle of broom and thompson streets the princess had taken up her temporary residence in the tenant-house number five one three broom which elegant mansion affords a refuge to about seventeen other families most hibernian without very high pretensions to aristocracy his ring at the door of the noble mansion was answered by a grisly woman speaking french very badly broken in fact irreparably fractured this grisly gall led him into the house heard his request to see madame bruce and then she called to a shock-headed boy who was looking over the banisters to come and take the visitor in charge two minutes observation convinced the distinguished caller that the servants of the princess were not particular in the matter of dirt the walls were stained discolored and debauded and the floor had a sufficient thickness of soil for a vegetable garden at one end of the hall indeed an irish woman was on her knees making experimental excavations possibly with a view to planting early lettuce and peppergrass a glance at the shock-headed boy showed a peculiarity in his visual organs his eyes which were black naturally had evidently suffered in some kind of fisticuff demonstration and one of them still showed the marks it was twice black naturally and artificially it had a dual nigritude and might perhaps be called a double-barreled black eye this pleasant young man conducted his visitor to the top of the first flight of stairs where he said please stop here a minute and disappeared into the princess's room leaving her devoted slave alone in the hall with two aged wash-tubs and a battered broom there ensued an immediate flurry in the rooms of the princess and the customer thought of the forty black slaves with jars of jewels on their heads who in oriental countries are in the habit of receiving princesses visitors with all the honors he hardly thought to see the forty black slaves with the jars of gems but rather expected the shock-headed youth to presently reappear with a mug of rubies or a kettle of sapphires and emeralds and invite him in courtly language to help himself to a few or that that active young man would presently come out with an amethyst snuff-box full of diamond dust and ask him to take a pinch and then present him with the expensive article as a slight token of respect from the princess not so not so my child the great shuffling and pitching about of things continued 
as if the furniture had been indulging in an extemporaneous jig, and couldn't stop on so short a notice, or else objected to any interruptions of the festivities. Finally the rattling of chairs and tables subsided into a calm, and the boy reappeared. He came, however, without the tea-kettle full of valuables, and minus even the snuff-box. He merely remarked, with an insinuating wink of the lightest colored eye, Please to walk this way. It did please his auditor to walk in the designated direction, and he entered the room, when the eye spoke again to a very low accompaniment of his voice, as if he was afraid he might damage that organ by playing on it too loudly. The anxious visitor looked for the princess, but not seeing her or the slaves with the pots of jewels, and observing also that the chairs were not too luxuriously gorgeous for people to sit on, he sat down. A single glance convinced him that the princess could have had no opportunity to carry off her jewels from her eastern home, or that she must have spent the proceeds before she furnished her present domicile. An iron bedstead, a small cooking-stove, four chairs, and a table, on which the breakfast crockery stood unwashed, was the amount of the furniture. A dirty, slatternly young woman of about twenty-three years, with filthy hands and uncombed hair, and whose clothes looked as if they had been tossed on with a pitchfork, seated herself in one of the chairs, and commenced conversation, not in Persian. It was one o'clock p.m., but she attempted an apology for the unmade bed, the unswept room, the unwashed breakfast dishes, and the untidy appearance of everything. Before she had concluded her fruitless explanation, the boy with a variegated eye suddenly came from a closet, which the customer had not noticed and was unprepared for, and said, in winning tones, Please to walk in this room, which was done with some fear and no little trembling, whereupon the optical youth incontinently vanished. At last, then, the imaginative visitor stood in the presence of royalty, and beheld the wronged princess of his heart. He was about to drop on his bended knees to pay his premeditated homage, but a hurried glance at the floor showed that such a course of proceeding would result in the ineffaceable soiling of his best pantaloons, so he stood sturdily erect. Before he suffered his eyes to rest upon the peerless beauty who, he was convinced, stood before him, he took a survey of the regal apartment. An unpainted pine table stood in the corner, a gaudily colored shade was at the window, and an iron single bedstead upon which the clothes had been hastily spread up, and two chairs on one of which sat the enchantress, completed the list. The princess was attired in deep black, and a thick black veil, reaching from her head to her waist, entirely concealed her features from the beholders who still devoutly believed in her royal birth and cruel misfortunes. Nor was this belief dissipated until she spoke. But when she called Pete to the double-barreled youth with the eye, and gave him a blowing up in the most emphatic kind of English for not bringing her pocket-handkerchief, then the beautiful princess of his imagination vanished into the thinnest kind of air, and there remained only the unromantic reality of a very vulgar woman in a very dirty dress, and who had a very bad cold in her head. There was still a hope that she might be pretty, and her would-be admirer, 
fervently trusted that she might be compelled to lift her veil to blow her nose, but she didn't do it. Then he offered her his hand, not a marriage, but for her to read his fortune in, and stood, no longer trembling with expectation, but with stony indifference, for as he approached her, a strong odor of onion-laden breath from beneath the veil gave the death-blow to the fair creature of his imagination, and convinced him that he had got the wrong princess by the fist. She looked at him closely for a couple of minutes, and then spoke these words, the peculiar pronunciation being probably induced by the cold in her head. You are a bad who has saw a great many changes, and it seems here as if you was goin' to be bore settled in the future. It seems here like as if you had subtypes in your life be very much cast down. But it seems here like as if you had always got up again. It seems here like as if you had saw in your last life sub lady which you liked very much and had been disappointed. It seems here like as if there was two barrages for you, what it a very short time. What lady seems here to stad very dear to you, and you two may be buried or you bay dot. If you are dot already buried, you would be very sued. It seems here as if you would have a very large family. Five children would be all that you will have. You will have a good deal of buddy, money, in your life. Some of your relatives that you have never saw will soon die and leave you some property. But you will not be expecting it, it seems here, as if you would have trouble in getting it, for there will someone else try to get it away from you. It seems as if the lady you will bury will not be too dark-complexed, nor yet too light, not too tall, nor yet very short, not too large, nor too thin. She thinks a great deal of you, more than you do of her. You have already saw her in the course of your life, and she loves you very much. There are people about you in your business who are not so much your friends as they pretend to be. You are going to bake some change in your business. It will be a good thing for you, and will come out much better than you expect. Here she stopped and intimated that she would answer any questions that her customer desired to ask, and in reply to his interrogatories, the following important information was elicited. You will be log-lived, and you will have two wives, and will live many years with your first wife. The individual proclaimed himself satisfied, and paid his money, whereupon Madame Bruce instantly yelled, Pete, when the eye-boy reappeared to show the door, and the cash-customer departed, leaving the mysterious veiled lady shivering on her stool, and exceedingly desirous of an opportunity to use her pocket-handkerchief. And this is all there was of the Persian princess. As the seeker after wisdom went away, he made one single audible remark, by way of consoling himself for his crushed hopes and blighted anonymous love. It was to this effect. I believe she squints, and I know she's got bad teeth. End of chapter 3